Thank you, Pathfinders. This morning, I want to uh, encourage you in a couple different ways. We have this chest up here, and uh, it won't work to keep it closed, so I'm going to open it. And this chest was prepared by the Robertsons back when we uh, did a remodel. I'm going to ask Pastor Page if he'll come out here. He's got, I uh, had, you know, we had an original $1.21 that was shared with us to get us going on our purchase of the land. And then there was some dialogue between some of the parents and the leadership of our school. And uh, the idea was we need to make a way for everybody to do this. Now, you know in Battle Creek there was an old building that burned down, and we called it the what tabernacle? It was called the Dime Tabernacle. And the Dime Tabernacle was a, a beautiful building, a large church that held lots of Seventh-day Adventists. Well, little... Every time I turn around, I see the Lord at work in this project for our young people. And uh, yesterday, when I came into the church, I saw this chest. It was in the back. And uh, it was an anticipation of inviting everybody, from the youngest to the oldest, to do what they could. Well, I didn't, I shouldn't have been surprised. Last night, I had somebody call me up. Now, this jar was full. I've, half of it's taken out. And that's because we're going to do this at the other service too. But I had somebody call me up last night and say, Pastor, we've got this, this jar of coins. And they went on to talk to me about how everybody could potentially do this collecting. And this morning when this was brought in to me, I was, uh, I was told that when they get to where they only have a few cents, like you're only going to get two cents back, that they'll actually give the cashier an extra dollar and say, I'd like that to come back in coins as well. And then they'll tell the cashier that they're doing this as part of a missionary project. So this morning, um, I'm going to make the first deposit of what I'll call our spare change, which I don't really think is so spare. And we're going to deposit that in there. And at the second service, I'll deposit the rest of the money, and we will padlock this uh, and make it secure so that when this is placed, wherever its final resting place comes, uh, it is a depository for the purchase of the new land. And then also I'm calling the church, those that can and will, to join me in fasting on Monday. Because on Monday we have the next big hurdle relative to the land, and that is a, another preliminary with the plan commission. So I'm asking those of you that can to please uh, fast and pray. You may let go of something other than food. You may do only simple food. You may do no food, but I'm asking you to join me on Monday in fasting and praying because a major general direction will either come to be or not come to be on Monday evening at our planning commission meeting. And then lastly, I also want to make you aware, um, I did this with the prayer meeting, so uh, many of you are aware of what this is about, but uh, I had somebody text me last Sabbath and say, I have a dollar per dollar match for $6,050. So when we get another $6,050, we will then have... Uh, 
a very interesting number, and that number will be $12,100, which you recognize to be a thousand times more than the first offering. So for those that would like to join in, you can see our bulletin in the back. Uh, we are making progress. We will be adding to that a sizable number from our church and school reserves, so about two-thirds to three-quarters of the number for the purchase of the property. We'll be going into that thermometer. If we get another 6,050, can come from many places, that 6,050 will be matched and we'll have a thousand-fold more than our first offering of $1.21. So may the Lord bless us. The other thing I want to invite you to today, it's going to be a beautiful Sabbath day. I want to invite you this evening to our Strong Tower uh, Radio Rally. You know, folks, if we can fill this church up in an appropriate way for our social or physical distancing, Seventh-day Adventists are about mission. When Seventh-day Adventists lose their mission, Seventh-day Adventism recedes, declines, and plateaus. We don't want to be there. So there's a new potential station in Kalamazoo, not too terribly far from here. My guess is some that live farther to the north and the east might be able to pick this station up when it starts carrying the three angels' messages. Until then, I'm inviting you back this afternoon. I think it's at 6 o'clock, uh, your bulletin says. Uh, but let's come together and let's encourage our efforts. These radio stations keep getting a little closer to us. We have low power. This will be full power. And let's come together and enjoy fellowship as well as encouragement. Now, this morning is a very special uh, day because we're celebrating our pathfinders. And as I think about pathfindering, I realize that uh, it had made a significant impact in my life. As a matter of fact, the people that were part of my life as I came to Christ were people's names that still jump out with amazing uh, impact as I recall their role. Mr. and Mrs. Pittenger, who were the leaders of our Pathfinder Club. And also my Pathfinder counselor, Vernon Franklin. Uh, I can't hardly say the name without smiling. He was an older gentleman that knew how to have fun, but didn't defy the good taste and the good sense of his Christian experience and the doing of it. I think about my first attempt. My mother tried to put me in a Pathfinder program when I was in the fifth grade. It didn't work too good. My, uh, my recollection of that weekend is of wet green canvas, burned beanhole beans, a long Sabbath afternoon walk, and uh, finding a, a crankshaft from a V8 engine laying in the ditch, carrying it back to the campsite. I don't know what for. Um, when I think about some of the significant events, I can remember at a Pathfinder Camporee, listening to my director give advice that I had never heard before, but I was open to listening to him because of the prominent place he had in my life. And he said that every morning when he got up, he drank a big glass of water, first thing. And he explained some of the, I suspect, the physiology behind it and its benefits. It's something I started doing. When I think about my pathfindering program, I think about some of the books I read. The most important book I read in Pathfinders was the Bible. As a matter of fact, Pathfindering has a Bible reading plan. And I read the entire Bible through and it transformed my life. 
As a matter of fact, I would sit in the youth classes later on, a year or two later, and I would answer questions that none of the other kids in the church could answer, and the leaders were kind of amazed by it. It was as simple as having read the Bible. But I also read some other books like Rudo, Rudy the Reckless Russian, a Russian basketball player who stood up for his faith and would not back down over issues of the Sabbath. And then I read a book for some reason that stuck in my mind. It was called The China Doctor. Some of you may have read this very same book about Harry Miller. Now, Harry Miller was a very significant man in our denomination. He was trained at a medical college in Battle Creek, graduated in 1902. He died the year that I was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church at age 97. He had gone to China where he had brought his surgical skills. In the midst of it all, he became a pioneer in developing soybean milk. Now, back when I was coming into the church, soy milk tasted pretty terrible in my opinion. And uh, we've seen it refined to a point that it actually isn't a big sacrifice to let go of the cow's milk and drink plant milk. But the truth of the matter is, he fed poorly nourished Chinese children because of his Adventist roots. And he took care of the surgical needs, 6,000 thyroid operations, 30,000 other operations. He was born in Ohio, and he, of course, had to leave China because of various political unrest. But even at the age of 81, he went back to Hong Kong where he was instrumental in setting up two institutions, the Tsuen Wan Hospital in New Territories and the Hong Kong Adventist Hospital. Dr. Miller, it says in his obituary, which, by the way, was in the New York Times, lest we think he was an out-of-the-way individual, Dr. Miller had predicted that it would be possible that the world could become a vegetarian society by the end of the 20th century. Of course, it did not. He lived to the ripe old age of 97. When I think about the element of impact on my life, uh, I realize that every single person that's made a journey to the Boundary Waters with me, that is a legacy of my training in Pathfinders. Confidence in the outdoors, not to be afraid. So many people are afraid of the sounds of the night and the darkness without street light to illuminate the shadows of the forest. And as I've thought about it this morning, I'm convinced that we've left one building off the new property, and that is a Pathfinder building. And we ought to consider a place dedicated completely to the elements of the development of the love of God through the Bible, through mission, and through the out-of-doors. Now, this morning, I've entitled my message, Vitamin D3 and the Healing of the Church. And before we go any farther, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, we're in your house on this beautiful May day. Bless this month, Lord. Bless the farmers in our community. Uh, bless those that are finishing schooling. And I pray, Lord, bless us all as we celebrate new life. And today we celebrate it in Jesus. We celebrate it with our young uh, pathfindering missionaries. And I pray bless their homes, bless this church, and bless us as we think about how to find strength and vitality for your church in the 21st century. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, most of you have probably seen the, uh, the online YouTube ministry of the Fallbrook Church where Dr. Wes Youngberg has taken the time to highlight the power of vitamin D in combating viral illnesses. And there are those today that are still suffering from COVID. And if you are, I don't want you to forget that many in modern science, as well as many of us inside the uh, subculture of our Adventist church with good scientific backing, uh, understand the power of this vitamin. Uh, This newspaper article says, could most COVID-19 deaths have been prevented? Mounting research on vitamin D's effects on COVID-19 have more clinicians and researchers calling for its wider use. There are some who might be watching me even this morning who are battling COVID. This morning, my interest is not so much about pressing back the symptoms of this ever-persistent disease as it is about examining the health and well-being of our church. And this morning, I'd like to suggest to you that there are three Ds that might actually turn some things around. And this morning, I want to talk about them with you. When I was a boy, I can remember my mother stuck me in that Pathfinder program where we had that horrendous rainy weekend, didn't stick. For some reason, she inserted me again before I was in church school. This time, it was 1975. I was 11, 12 years old. I was at the Creek Camporee. It was the Lake Union-wide Camporee held on the south side of the Chicago suburbs. And uh, I want to encourage you parents, your children can survive an awful lot of things if they're loved at home, if they have proper discipline and structure at home. I was not exceptionally well received into the Pathfinder Club. It wasn't that I was ostracized, but I found myself on a uh, afternoon, for all I know, it may have been a Sabbath afternoon, probably was, I'm not sure. But I had wandered with three other uh, young men from the campsite there where the Peoria Pathfinder Club, the Peoria Fila Day uh, Club was at. And uh, it had just so happened that boys started doing what boys would do. And so there was this big hill there at this, uh, I think it might have been a Boy Scout camp. And for some reason, we started picking up dirt clods and throwing them at each other. And uh, two of the boys were better friends, and I didn't know anybody, so I was stuck with someone else who became a good friend of mine. wasn't a very good shot. But, uh, and when you're throwing dirt clods at each other, it happens to be kind of a dangerous thing to do, but boys don't think about that when they're 11 and 12 years old. They just try to score a hit and establish their young manhood. And uh, two of the boys had made a very wise decision. They had gravitated up to the top of the hill, and here were the other two of us at the bottom of the hill. And uh, certainly those at the high ground have an advantage over those in the low ground. And as we were throwing dirt clods at each other rather vigorously, all of a sudden I noticed that the boys at the top of the hill had stopped throwing dirt clods. Well, that seemed like a great advantage to us to continue throwing dirt clods. What I haven't told you about the story is that the boys at the top of the hill could not only see better, they could see the Pathfinder directors walking up behind us who were throwing dirt clods. And so they had decided that they should exempt themselves from looking quite as culpable in in this situation. I learned that the high ground is better ground. And this morning, I'm calling all of us back to the high ground 
for the healing of the church. And I'm going to use the paradigm, the frame of pathfindering to do it. Now, there are things in my life that I shall never forget. And one of them goes like this. By the grace of God, you can join me if you want, I will be pure and kind and true. I will keep the AJY law I used to say. You say pathfindering now. I will be a servant of God and a friend to man. The pathfinder law is for me to keep the morning watch, do my honest part, care for my body, keep a level eye, be courteous and obedient, walk softly in the sanctuary, and go on God's errands. Now, I said that over and over again as a boy on Wednesday nights in the upstairs of what had been the old school in the Peoria Knoxville Avenue Church. And that room was decorated with the kind, it was kind of a rustic, rough old building, but it had books in it and it, it had different things hanging on the wall. And night by night, we'd arrive at the Peoria Church, and if we got there early enough, there were some big oak trees that grew in the parking lot, and every fall they'd drop myriads of acorns, and we'd love throwing those acorns at each other, which was against the rules. And every night the whistle would blow and we would stop everything right on a dime and we would rush to the places where we would stand in line. And we would go through an inspection. And in that inspection, we'd hold our hands out for our fingernails to be observed. And we'd get asked questions about how we had lived our lives during the week. And you know, behind that whole club were some people that had thrown themselves in to the discipleship of young people's lives, and I don't think I look forward to anything more than I did the Wednesday night appointment for pathfindering. But there are some things that have happened in our society which are worrying not against our pathfinder clubs alone, but against our homes and our churches and everything else. And this morning, I want to go over them because unless they're reinserted into the homes first, into the school and the church second and third, it will not only be the demise of our experience with our young, it will not only be the failure to call them to the mission of the church, it will be a half-hearted, limp-along life where nobody really feels too proud about anything, they're a little bit embarrassed about the mediocrity of who we are and what we do, and that, my friends, has to change. When I was the pastor here for the first few months, maybe the first year, there was a phrase that we used, that I used, I started using, because it appeared to me that it was time to call everybody back to the cross where the highest order of devotion and discipline and duty could be reinstituted in the experience of the church. And this was the phrase I used, no more blemished offerings, only the best for God. That's what he deserves, that's what he gave. And that's the only way excellence develops in the experience of any body of people. The first thing I want to talk about this morning with you for your home, for your work, for your school, for your church, for your life, is the function of discipline. Discipline is an element of the experience with Christ. Take your Bibles this morning and go back to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We're familiar with these verses, but it's not the preacher's job to tell you anything new. It's the preacher's job to remind you of what you already know. Philippians chapter 3. Where there is no discipline, there is no excellence. 
Where there is no excellence, there is no respect. Where there is no respect, there is no attraction. Where there is no attraction, there is no growth. Discipline is a distinct and positive element when conducted in the environment of love and support. The absence of discipline allows the, the entropy, you know, the, the order of things to go downhill. This law of thermodynamics that everything moves from order to disorder. Without discipline, that disorder takes away the respect, including self-respect. Proverbs, looking at Philippians, I want to think for a second about Paul's journey. Verse 8, well, we'll start with verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of the knowing of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is received from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. Skipping down. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ also has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward, I press on toward the goal, verse 14, of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses the metaphor of a, a, a person running a race, buffeting himself, disciplining himself. Do you know how to say no to the inclinations of the flesh? Do you live by your feelings like most in the 21st century? I feel like it, I don't feel like it. Or do we have a priority system that says this matters and I will tell myself no? There's nobody who comes out of a gym or finishes a morning run who doesn't feel better about themselves because they went against the natural inclinations of the heart. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So I want to talk to you parents. I want to talk to you grandparents, aunties and uncles, teachers, pastors, friends. Do you have something as simple in your home as a schedule? And does that schedule enshrine your priorities? If the answer is no, the lack of discipline will render you unprepared for the hardships of life and also unprepared for enduring as a good soldier the hardships of the gospel. There is something about discipline which a person which is overcommitted has a hard time really embracing and benefiting from. And by the way, it's a lie that you can do all the things you want and live for your dreams. We need to stop teaching our kids to live for their dreams and start teaching them to live for the upward call of Christ Jesus where their lives can understand their destiny, their duty, and experience the discipline that would make this church great again. I think pathfindering has the power to be an instrumental part of it, but the core 
cornerstones of Pathfinder and have the power to affect us in all places. Discipline is a function of a higher call, a deeper priority, and a willingness to delay gratification. And it's important that we go through simple little disciplines like this one. Jesus went 40 days without eating. Why? Because appetite is probably the most commonly reoccurring challenges to the development of this component of discipline and saying, no, it is a victory Christ won for us. Our children and in our homes should not be eating whenever they want and whatever they want. I'll say it again. Neither we nor our children should be eating whatever they want whenever they want. And I want you to think about it. It is the first place Satan comes to ensnare somebody with lifelong self-indulgence. And while God made food to be enjoyed, he also understood that in the fallen nature, food was going to have to be enjoyed in a healthy way at a proper time for the edification of this body temple to where the Spirit dwells. There are little disciplines that we need to go back to, and they have nothing to do with legalism. And they have everything to do with self-respect and self-control. And while no discipline can happen well in an environment where there's not love, I mean, I think about it. Why could Mr. and Mrs. Pittenger command so much respect from 30 to 40 kids? It's because they loved us so much that we wanted to please them. Mr. Vernon Franklin had so much fun with us. He was probably 60 years old when he was my Pathfinder counselor. And I can still remember him offering to buy us a grasshopper shake at the Yorkville Dairy Queen if we wanted it, with one caveat. We had to eat it once he ordered it. And he played with our minds on and off so long that there were real grasshoppers in there that we never took him up on it. You talk about psychologists and mind games and fun, Vernon Franklin had it. The dynamics of discipline are important to any Pathfinder club, any school, any church, any undertaking that requires exertion and excellence. And this morning, I'm calling us back to some discipline, not to earn the love of Christ and not to make ourselves somehow think we are the great mathematicians about adding up the experience of salvation, but because discipline is a way of life. The Bible tells us that the undisciplined child is the illegitimate child. The Bible tells us that we should not despise the Lord's discipline. Discipline is not the mainstay of child-rearing. Love is. But love without discipline is dysfunction. Love in a sentiment without substance is not love at all. And I'm calling everyone listening to me here today to realize there's discipline in the Christian journey. You don't feel like doing something. Well, welcome to the human race. There are times when I don't feel like doing lots of things. And I say, thank you, Jetty Kelly, my mother. Thank you, Ron Kelly Sr., my father. Thank you to my teachers. Thank you 
to my Pathfinder leaders, thank you to those bosses who taught me lots of things about life and work. Discipline is the journey to excellence and self-respect. And when there is no discipline, there is no sense of respect. This morning, I'm calling the entire church back to a sense of discipline. Now, we watch pendulum swing. I was just reading the other day as Ellen White was writing some counsels to some of our educators, and she basically said, if there's anything that's going to ruin our kids, it's the fact that in her day, the, the, uh, the culture that had been created was one of real discipline. As a matter of fact, it was out of bounds. And she said, it is the iron in your character that's going to drive the kids out of the church. Now, mind you, that's my loose paraphrase. She was appealing to a group to get things into balance. And she was basically saying this regimented rule-keeping without the love of Christ isn't going to work to connect a heart to a heart. This morning, what I'm telling you is connecting a heart to a heart without some bones is like having a, a, a pile of flesh and muscle here. We need them both. These wonderful muscles that move our bones are nothing without the bones. And of course, the bones without all the rest are nothing either. But it's time for us to move this pendulum back to the place where there's some discipline. You can't do everything. So mama and papa, your children are not going to be the 21st century epitome of do everything, be best at everything. So figure it out what it matters to be done most. And if there's no family worship in your schedule, woe be unto you and woe be unto your children. And if there's too much you're trying to put your arms around and it means neglect to the primary ministry of your children and their developmental ages, woe unto you as well and woe unto the church and the school and society too. There is to be a prioritization that says it's worth it. And for any of you that have run in a race at all, you understand, as I mentioned it at prayer meeting, I think when I start running again, it probably would take me two months before I actually enjoy running. But I say to myself as I run and then I walk, I'm going to keep doing this because it's good for me. It's like Hulda Crook said as she climbed in the mountains of California, the head's on top, so it's in charge. And it tells the rest what to do. When I say no to a whole nother serving of something that doesn't do something for me, I'm saying yes to a greater goal, a higher priority, and a journey of joy. The second thing I want to talk about, when I think about going on God's errands, when I think about being a servant of God and a friend to man, I'm reminded of the word duty. Now, if there's a word that's fallen out of favor in modern day, it's this one. But I'm here to remind everybody this morning, including our pathfinders, their parents, their leaders, is that you have a duty to Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. I am not my own, therefore I'm called to glorify God in my body, 1 Corinthians 6 says, and I'm called to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my being. What does that duty involve? If I'm actually supposed to take this message to a world, if I'm a church that's supposed to take this message to a world, 
Don't I have a duty to the ignorant and the lost? Without that sense of duty, it's easy for me to enjoy things that are not mine to enjoy. This is what the Bible says. Hear the conclusion of the matter. When all has been heard, it's our duty to fear God and keep His commandments, and this applies to every person. When we think about the words of Jesus, He tells us in Luke chapter 17, let's turn there if we could, Luke chapter 17, He talks about duty. And of course, Jesus' journey here was not a spiritual vacation. Jesus came here and left behind the beauty of heaven, the sweet savor of heaven, the absolute unmitigated joy of heaven. And Jesus comes here to live in this cesspool of the cosmos with people who have all kinds of terrible, nasty habits, not the least of which is self-centeredness. It says in verse 7, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me a while while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not think that, thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded of him. So you too, when you do all things which are commanded to you, say, we're unworthy, we're unprofitable servants. We've only done that which we ought to have done. The Bible tells us to do our work as unto God, not as unto man, that we're to bear the weaknesses of those that are around us when we're strong. It tells us that we're to do everything without grumbling or complaining, and it calls us to walk worthy of our Lord and to do our work heartily as unto God and not unto men. Now, I want to know what your duty is to this church. I want you to think about it. What is your duty to this body of believers or wherever you attend? And there are people watching online. What is your duty? And I want to ask how many duties that you're called to do do you feel like doing? And I want to ask one more question. After you do your duty, are you glad you did your duty? And if you didn't do your duty, when you haven't done your duty, but you did something else you thought would be more fun anyway, how do you feel? So I want to ask, when it comes to duty, how is the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if we had to grade ourselves on duty, where would we grade ourselves? But since the church is that, you know, amorphous, uh, you know, somebody, whoever, Let's just think about ourselves for a minute. A world to win, escalating darkness, an aggressive postmodern mindset. What's our duty? I'm going to ask some very practical questions here. Do you have a duty to pray? It's a duty. And I want to tell you something. I've sat with married people who no longer love each other. They have a duty to go like God says to the church in Ephesus back to its first works so that it could fall in love again. Duty. Do we have a duty to give money, time, 
benefits of education or culture? Do we have a duty? Is there anything in our life that actually relates to a higher call, to an ownership by heaven, and a redemption by heaven? If the answer is no, then to quote the modern prophet Jordan Peterson, secular prophet, I might add, without responsibility there is no meaning. Why do the secular prophets have to announce the sublime eternal truths? Without responsibility, there is no meaning. And for the last five decades, he says, we've done a pretty poor job of teaching it. The truth of the matter is, that which feels uncomfortable in the beginning, like a new, like a young horse or ox, the first time it's in the, in the harness or in the yoke, eventually it learns that this is its purpose and the discomfort goes away and the purpose drives the actions, the meaning, and the thought of life. The Bible actually says in the book of Lamentations, it's good to bear the yoke when you're young. And when we look at a church where the young are not given opportunity, of course, most of this needs to happen in the home. But when they don't bear responsibility in the home, you know, all those people who grew up through the Great Depression, (laughs) man, oh man, were these people not indeed, many of them who morphed into the next few years after it, part of the greatest generation? What was it about that responsibility and that suffering during that period of time that committed them? Yes, some of it was the stark reality of starvation and want. Some of it was watching their parents stand in bread lines. There is a duty that should direct every life that wants to be full of meaning. And folks, it is our duty to corporately come together and pray for the lost of the world. It is our duty to act as compassion. You know, the church is no longer the main motivator in humanitarian dynamics. Have you noticed that? The whole humanitarian work, not in a completeness, but in many respects, it's been co-opted by the business world. This should not be. It's important for us to consider what our duties are. And I hope every person, every pathfinder, every parent will think about what did God give me and what do I owe to the world as a steward of His gifts. It could be money, it could be education, it could be hard work, it could be any one of a number of spiritual or other gifts. But we owe it to Jesus and we owe it to the world. The last thing that I think is largely missing, although I see it growing in so many people's hearts, is this command from Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Of course, he says you should love your neighbor as yourself. This love is what Jesus wants most. So, if we could all be honest enough to admit the things in our lives that are like parasites 
on our Christian experience. You know, the, the blood-sucking mosquitoes, the lampreys, the intestinal worms, all the things you can get. The idols. I'm here to tell you. When I think about the words of Jesus, I have to think about my life. How am I spending it? And I hear the words of that song, Oh, we are the pathfinders strong. The servants of God are we. Why do preachers have a hard time mustering an army if this is a fact? Why should every preacher's first fear be if they go to hold an evangelistic series, they'll be preaching to more empty pews than full ones? The servants of God are we, faithful as we march along in kindness, truth, and purity. A message to tell to the world of truth that will set them free, set us free. King Jesus, the Savior, is coming back for you and me. So, where is the discipline? Where is the sense of duty that will lead us to a greater devotion? I'm here to tell you there's lots of things I've had to do in life that I didn't like. I don't like, I didn't used to like dressing up. And I had been schooled enough in the 90s, which is like 20 years past the 70s, the people just needed to take me as I was. I can still remember in my first district, I can remember walking through the front room. I'm on my way to a meeting at the church, and my wife says, you're not going like that, are you? I stopped. She didn't subscribe to my theory. I said, yes, I was. She said, no, you shouldn't. And you know, some people refer to these things as chokers. But the funny thing is, nowadays, depending on where I'm at, what I'm doing, I don't even feel like I've got the right things on if I don't have one on. And let's not get up on the jewelry and everything else like that about these things. If we could just accept it's business attire. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you, there's all kinds of things that have changed in my life because I accepted a value system outside of my own feelings for a purpose higher than just living unto myself and the upward call of Jesus Christ. I can remember as a person driving down to a prayer meeting at a church that I was to be at and it's like it was just sucking the life out of me to go. It was the most negative, dysfunctional group of people I've ever worked with in my whole life and I won't tell you what church it was. But I drove that little blue Nissan down that road 
every week because it was my duty. And I love those people, not necessarily always with the natural affection that would come in a certain type of relationship, but I love those people in the name of Jesus Christ and had to conflict with them at times. But you know, things changed. And I've prayed right up here in the front of this church at weeks of prayer with people, some of which I didn't naturally like. And in the process of following the discipline and the duty, my heart was turned to devotion for those very same people. Nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. If you really want the church to be great again, then we're going to have to take a cue from the Pathfinders. And remember, we're servants of God, faithful as we march along in truth and purity and kindness. That was added after I was a Pathfinder, by the way. God is calling this church back to a healing moment. And that healing moment is going to involve acting with a new priority system or a renewed one. And the head before the heart kicks in, perhaps. I don't know how it's going to work for you. But I do know this. We need more of what these young people bring to us this morning. And young people, the commitments are bigger than maybe you've even thought about as of yet. I'm not a pastor because it's the easiest job and the best paying one. I'm a pastor because it's what I was called to do. It's my duty. And I'll leave you with this last text. Delight yourself in the Lord. And I can tell you it's more than duty to pastor. And he will give you the desires of your heart. I'm here this morning living out the true desires of a heart that didn't know itself. Because I followed the upward call. And this morning I'm inviting all of you to do the same. May God bless us as he works to heal his church by healing our hearts and our homes first.